This is Our American Stories, and today we celebrate Veterans Day. This holiday started out as Armistice Day to mark the anniversary of the end of major hostilities in World War I. After World War II, this was expanded to honor all veterans. In recent decades, military service has become more of a family tradition than a national one. As we've moved to an all-volunteer force, fewer and fewer of us know the men and women who serve in our armed forces. So on this Veterans Day, we'd like to start the hour by telling you the story of a legend among veterans. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to tell Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story twice. First, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And then we'll hear Benavidez himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army, retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2nd, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen 
and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And no one did those ceremonies better than Reagan because Reagan, well, that's what he lived for, was that kind of ceremony. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Master Sergeant Benavides himself. And we're all grateful to all of you, and fallen or not, here on Veterans Day, anyone who served, tip a hat, thank them, honor them, all veteran stories in a way. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides' story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind this legend? Here's Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, shine shoes, sold papers, pick cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learn the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia, but the Durham recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so, after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross transatlantic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. Feeling danke, danke, sir. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg, and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clocker Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to retire, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall using my elbows and my chin. 
my back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah, the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there, to burn the flag and what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, our old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometime. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching. I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five and ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam. It's 1968, and the war is ramping up. Latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist, and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. 
We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his buddy, so Benavidez naturally got ready to just go back out and do it again. I was in another staging area waiting for an next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, get us out of here, get us out of here, come in, get us out quick, ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, my God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, who are the people on the ground? He said, hey, he said, it's that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller, the guy that's in, he said, you can't go in there, you can't go in, it's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. You can't go in there, you can't go in there, it's too hot. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this story. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story here on Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day, one veteran story, but it could be any veteran serving our country. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, celebrating Veterans Day here. As always, we spend a full hour on that every day, and Memorial Day, and so many other days. And we celebrate military history on this show regularly. And it's sad that so few people have connection to our military and our armed forces and the lives of the people in them. But that's why we do this storytelling. You just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio, so he decided to just jump on a chopper against everyone's advice. As he says, he did not know that that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly wounded and secure classified documents. Here again, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how in the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through 
when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area, and it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, I, I, he was on a helicopter. So they let, they let the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh, my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much. That's the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa, 
in that airplane that I was flying in Matavac, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion. And I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career. Then I was awarded with a medal. After all of this, Benavidez recovered and he moved back to his home in Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Master Sergeant Benavidez, duty, honor, country. You never live unless you almost die. And we're going to just rip through the wars, the casualties, and those who were killed. The American Revolution, 25,000 died, 25,000 wounded. War of 1812, 15,000 died, 4,500 wounded. The Civil War... 750,000 dead. And then it just, well, World War I, 116,000 dead, 204,000 of our best and finest men wounded. World War II, 405,000 dead, 
667,000 wounded. The Korean War, 36,000 dead, 92,000 wounded. Vietnam, 58,000 dead, 153,000 wounded. And then Afghanistan, 2,350 dead, 18,000 wounded. And Iraq, 4,400 dead, 32,000 wounded. 1,354,000 of our finest, their lives cut short. And 1,500,000 wounded. Celebrating all of their lives and all of those who serve here on Veterans Day, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of Veterans Day. We just talked about how many Americans have given their lives or limbs in service of our nation over the centuries. But of course, there are plenty of veterans living among us now. There are about 19 million men and women currently living who have previously served on active duty in the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard, and 1.3 million on active duty right at this moment. And as fewer and fewer of us know members of the military as close friends and family, we might start thinking of them as some kind of other out there performing great deeds of heroism for us to cheer from the other side of the TV screen. But our veterans aren't others. Indeed, they're us. And we're reminded of that every time we read war letters. We've done a lot of those on our show, and this is one of our favorites. It comes from Fletcher Isaacs, grandson of World War II veteran Leonard Isaacs, who was killed in action on Iwo Jima in 1945. Here's Fletcher reading the letter Leonard sent to his two boys, including Fletcher's father, before he shipped out to serve in the Pacific, never to return. December 17, 1944. My dear little boys, I'm writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. All of this coming week will be holidays, and I can just imagine the fun you'll be having, especially when you know that it's just a few days before Santa Claus will be coming. If it were possible, I would like to come down the chimney myself and crawl right into your stocking. Wouldn't that be a surprise? I would enjoy it even more than you, but since your dad is far away and Santa Claus has the only reindeers that will fly through the air, I'm afraid we will have to let Santa Claus use them. After all, he has so many places to go in such a short time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you've been helping your mother while I'm gone. I know that it is only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time, but I do want you to think about helping Mummy because it's hard for her to do everything while I'm gone. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present too, so I'll tell you what you can do, and this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask Mummy if there's any errands that you can do for her, and when there are errands, to run. Say, sure, Mummy, and give her a big smile. Then during the day, go and pick up your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or if you've left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, when Mummy is busy trying to clean up the house, 
don't leave her by herself, but ask mummy if you can help take care of baby sister. If you do those things for me, well, that will be the finest Christmas present that you could give me. Oh yes, and Cece, are you eating your meals like a real man now? Well, my boys, I guess you often wonder why people fight and have wars, and why lots of daddies have to be away at Christmas time fighting, when it would be so much nicer just to be at home. That's a hard question to answer. But you see, some countries like Japan and Germany have people living in them, just like some people you and I know. Those people want to tell everybody what they can do and what they can't do. No one likes to be told how to live their life. I know that you wouldn't like it if one of the boys in the neighborhood tried to tell you what church you should go to, what school you should go to, and particularly if that boy was always be trying to beat up some smaller or weaker boy. You wouldn't like that, would you? And unfortunately, the only way to make a person like that stop these sorts of things, or a country like Japan or Germany, is to fight them and to beat them and teach them that being a bully, because after all, that's what they are, is not the way to live and that we won't put up with it. What does all this mean to you? Just simply this, my boys. Dad doesn't want you to ever be a bully. I want you to always fight against anyone who tries to be one. I want you to always help the smaller fellow or the little boy who may not be as strong as you. I want you to always share what you have with the other fellow. And above all, my boys, have courage. Have courage to do the things that you think are right. Never be afraid to fight for what you think is right. To do those things, you need a strong body and a brave heart. Never run away from someone you may be afraid of. If you do, you will always feel ashamed of yourself, and before long, you will find it so easy to run away from the things that you should stand up and fight against. If you and lots of other boys try to do the things that Dad has been talking to you about in this letter, it may be that people will not have to fight wars in the years to come, and then all the daddies in the world will be home for Christmas. And that is where they belong. Perhaps some of the things that I've been talking about you don't quite understand. If you don't, Mummy will explain them to you, as she knows. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you. Daddy. And a dad just trying to cheer up the kids. Here's another letter, this one from the ancestor of a friend of this show, the late Maida Pearson Smith of Tennessee. This letter is from Amelia Irvin Smith to Daniel Smith, dated Monday, May 6th, 1861. Here's Faith reading this great letter. My dear husband, I've just heard from you through Tom Matthews, who has kindly offered to take this letter to you. He tells me that you have been or will be received into the company. I heard after you left that the company was full and all those who went up to Montgomery late were turned off. And I was in hopes there would be enough without you and you would soon be at home again with us. But I know it is wrong to be selfish and I will try to submit to it cheerfully and do my duty towards the precious charge you have left behind. I've thought of you every moment since you left, except when asleep and my imagination has presented a thousand pictures of your situation, but I cannot tell whether any of them are true or not. And I sincerely hope that you will be more comfortable than I can imagine. The children are continually talking about Pa 
and asking when he will come home. Little Percy has been calling you several times, and Sally says that I must go after you and bring you back. She can't do without you. I always tell them that you will come as soon as you can, and I feel that you will. But do not think for one moment that I wish you to sacrifice your honor in the least, even for the happiness of being always with you. For I love it as much as you could, and I would not for my life be the means of casting the slightest blemish on your dear name. So when your thoughts turn homeward, think of me as being more reconciled and cheerful than when you left. Do take care of yourself for my sake. You can't imagine what a desolate, hopeless existence life would be to me without you. When you write, tell me all about your fare and how and where you sleep. I hope you are not exposed to the night air much, but I know that there is a being who can make all things powerless to harm you, and it is in him I place my trust. May he watch over you and bless you in every undertaking and bring you back to us again safely. The children all send much love and many little messages, which I have not room to write. The long, long days that have passed away before I see you again will have an end sometime. And depend on it, my dear husband, I will try and bear the bitter separation as cheerfully as possible. Do write as often and as much as you can, for every word that comes from you is precious to me. Your affectionate, Amelia. And that was a terrific read, Faith. And there are so many more letters, and we play them every Memorial Day, too, because they're so terrific. And Andrew Carroll is one of the great collectors of war letters, and his book on the subject is, well, it's a must-read. You should have it in your home, and the family should rip through those letters together on these days. In addition to having the hot dogs and the hamburgers and all the other things, uh, spend some time thinking about our, our veterans and the folks who serve this country. And we want to end with a classic. Anyone who's ever seen Saving Private Ryan knows. And, well, it's a letter. And this is the reading of that very famous letter by one of the great Americans of all time. I have a letter here. Written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. Bear with me. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln.
And on this Veterans Day, we celebrate all who've served, all who did serve, all who are serving, and put their life in harm's way for all of us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Veterans Day, their stories, and celebrated as always here on this show. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is confessions of an undercover agent adventures close calls and the toll of a double life. And Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana. And by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans. So we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking, game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later 
when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups, I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, a very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of a rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. Right. And you know when Fred's saying that, right. that he means it. It's not just a, a platitude. Now, let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with B.C., ambushes and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit, you've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden uh, a terrifying moment the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, 
oh my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close. Or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, And that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision (laughs) because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment at our apartment and he came over we had coffee and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit he asked me if i would volunteer to go undercover i had no idea what that meant but it sounded exciting so i said oh, yeah and he said well don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters that started my 10-year undercover career you know six years with the baton rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. 
and therefore my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner, you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so uh, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out, and that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here, you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we, you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, yeah. which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up 
right and just move right like when the uh when the uh drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back and he pointed to a we were living in a mobile home he pointed to it that home and he said hey does mike live there and i was using the name mike right and she immediately knew what that was and she was out back with our little two or three year old son you know at the little playground and she said oh i don't know who lives there and so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie, be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to, you know, defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Euro. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories. Here are now American Stories. our American stories and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent 
adventures, close calls, and the toll of a double life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book. And it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told the heroin dealer had told the agent, "Look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road. Drive about twelve or fifteen miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road, and when you see my car." You park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry. Don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road. So Sarah and Jerry were really on their own. And it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving. And as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll. The heroin dealer produced the four ounces. And when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, Police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger. Bam! Bam! And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Debman, Jerry Debman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal. The undercover agent is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot thirty eight. To her, her partner, she ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Debman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow! Pow! Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment, and when they got down there, Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. 
She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room, and the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here, and they put him on a table, and the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital, and the nurse left, and Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding, and as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room, and she looked, and coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes, it was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back, and as she did, he yelled, don't put them on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put them on too tight. So she made sure she put them on a tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mr., Mr., would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. He was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep. And at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was. And the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, a blouse with blood all over it, and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. 
Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what, the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of uh, scam target and then call others to come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to to do things. Uh, And that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over multi-state area. 
So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings. And they were Dixie Mafia connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough who were cooperating and they were on the edges of these groups and they were cooperating and they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, but it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man, Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad. He'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute, don't tell them something that bad when I heard about, it. oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a, some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh. Uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it, but there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind and how much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning, I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they'd stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload, and they took me out in the country and showed them to me, and we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, it was a relative of his, lives on that, that hill up there in that house. 
uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it. But even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car from this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. Whatever that. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly... You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in the prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDEF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, prosecutor uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases, and the state agent said, um, well, you, you better get ready 
because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we work. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to cane, can to cane. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.